Thanksgiving edition of the Fromer Travel Podcast. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. I'm so grateful you're here. It's going to be an interesting show today. We've got three really great guests, and we're going to be exploring with the first two the meaning of travel. We're going to be doing that with a wonderful professor of philosophy. Her name is Emily Thomas. She just wrote a book called The Meaning of Travel. She'll be our second guest, kind of putting into context the work of our first guest, who is a memoirist and a mystery book writer, but we're talking to her about her travel memoir. Her name is Susan Spann, and she wrote a remarkable book called Climb, Leaving Safe, Finding Strength on 100 Summits in Japan. And because this is Thanksgiving week, after we speak with Susan and then Emily, we're going to finish up by talking about food because we're probably all at the stove this week, whipping up goodies for our families. And to help us on that topic, we have Tony Parate, who is a remarkable travel writer. He just wrote a piece for Travel and Leisure magazine that is so much fun. It's about the weird and oddly specific, as he says, food museums in Emilia-Romana, Italy. Before I get to those three guests, so we'll have Susan first, and then uh, Emily, and then Tony. Uh, But before I get to them, let me do a, a, a program note. Since it's Thanksgiving, I am not going to be doing another Uh, podcast this week. So this is it until the week after next. Uh, But we hope you'll come back and and see us then. And really hope you'll you'll, uh, write to us. This is a new thing for us doing this podcast. I've been on radio for, oh my goodness, probably 20 years now. But we've never had to uh, edit these things ourselves or do it outside of a studio. So we're still working out the kinks. We're still working out sound levels and using music appropriately to, to go between segments and much more. And what really helps is getting feedback from all of you, what you like, what you think could be improved. So if you want to help us out, please email Fromer. F-R-O-M-M-E-R, travel show at yahoo.com. That's Fromer Travel Show at yahoo.com. All right, let's start the show. Susan, it is so good to finally have you on the Fromer podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate being able to, to talk with you today. Well, you have a fascinating story, a story you told in your book. The book is called Climb, Leaving Safe and Finding Strength on 100 Summits in Japan. So give our readers or listeners uh, the lay of the land. What were the 100 summits? Why were you trying to climb them? And what was the monkey wrench (laughs) that got thrown into all of this? Well, thank you. I was in my 40s and I was practicing law at the time. And I was traveling to Japan because I was also writing a mystery series that was set in Japan, actually set in medieval Japan. And so I was spending several weeks in Japan Mm. traveling every year. And while I was traveling, it occurred to me that except for writing my books, pretty much everything that I had done my entire life was fueled by fear rather than by the things that brought me joy. And was that 
being a lawyer or was that something bigger you know, than that? It was that? actually even being a lawyer because my father had been a lawyer and my great grandfather had been a lawyer. And so although I had always wanted to be a novelist and I had always wanted to be a historian, I had gone into the practice of law largely out of fear, out of fear that I wouldn't be able to oh. make a living or I wouldn't be able to be successful doing something that I wasn't so familiar with. Right. So you decided to well, you, you tell the story. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> butting right. in. <laughs> so I decided that I was going to climb the Hyaku Meizan, which are the hundred famous mountains of Japan, and that I was going to do it in a single year. I was going to do this in order to break free from fear and do something that really scared me. And, you know, some people may say, well, climbing mountains, that's not scary. Well, it is when you've never climbed a mountain in your life. You know, <laughs> and it wow. is when you've pretty much never traveled alone, you know, when you are someone who's mm. used to sitting in an office, right, doing everything from the privacy of your own brain, as it were. And so I decided that I was going to face my fears by shuttering my law practice, taking a sabbatical, moving to Japan and climbing these mountains. And by the way, I wasn't just going to move to Japan. I talked with my husband and we were going to sell our home, reduce all of our belongings down to one small storage unit throw everything into the wind and do this for a year. Wow. You have a very understanding husband. Do you both speak Japanese? Uh, no, not at all. In fact, he had never been to Japan before we set out on this adventure. So, <laughs> wow. so I decided that I was going to do this. And by the way, I will mention that most Japanese people who climb the Yakumezan do it as a lifelong project because the belief is that you learn something from every mountain that you climb. And when you've finished the hundred, you come to a deep understanding of what mountains are all about, specifically Japanese mountains. And so this is huh. a very popular quest among people who climb and hike in Japan. And I should mention, these mountains are not Everest style, you know, gigantic peaks that require Sherpas and staged climbing and things like that. These are, most of them are really treks. And yes, no, <laughs> these are, these are mostly treks. And so I went to get my annual mammogram because of course I'm a responsible person and I advise all women to go and get their annual mammograms because in my case, it was just yeah. supposed to be a precaution. It was just supposed to be the last thing that I did before I applied for my visa and set off on my journey. In fact, I already had my plane ticket to go apply for the visa. Wow. Had you already sold your house? We had already started the process of fixing it up to put it on the market. Yes. And mm. uh, then I had my mammogram and was diagnosed with breast cancer. And that was quite the challenge. Uh, was very unexpected. I tell people, be careful what you wish for. If you want to face your fears, you may have them coming at you in spades. And I certainly did, because the one thing I had feared most since I was a little girl, actually, and my grandmother died of breast cancer, was getting breast cancer oh, myself. Oh, my goodness. Wow. How far into it were you when you caught it? I was still stage one. My cancer was what they call triple negative, which means it was not fueled by hormones. And so it was a very aggressive form of cancer. And I did, in fact, opt for a, you know, a, a radical surgery and for chemotherapy of the level they normally use to treat stage two, because with this type of cancer, you know, it's very dangerous if it comes back. And I mean, I'm pleased to announce that I'm now three years cancer free. And so it worked, um, but it did put a little crimp in things. In fact, I had to call my publisher. I oh, already... Boy already had the contract for this book. I had signed it one week before my diagnosis <laughs> and said, um, oh. said, I have good news and bad news. I said, the good news is I'm, 
you know, all set to go to Japan. But the bad news is it's going to be an extra four months because I have breast cancer. Wow. I hate to say this, but the publisher might have thought, oh, goody, <laughs> because so many people do fight cancer and have fought breast cancer. And this this could bring you another audience. That's too that's very cynical. <laughs> but it does it does add a layer of re- relatability. Uh, you must have a lot of cancer survivors who read this and, and come and talk. You know, with you. yes, cancer survivors and also people who are currently going through treatment. Um, I have had some wonderful oh. conversations with people who are currently going through treatment who've said that the book, in which I talk about my treatment as well as climbing these mountains, helped them to see that there was, in fact, light on the other end of this tunnel and that, you know, you can travel. You can, you don't, you have to pretend that you're never going to be able to travel or do anything again. And in fact, I've had some other people who face personal challenges who've contacted me and said, you know, the book was great because it showed me that, you know, if you could do it, maybe I could travel too. And so I, I really like that about it. Did the fact that you had these mountains in the future help you get through the hellish four months of dealing with what must have been a very difficult present? You know, in fact, it really did. Uh, curiously, just before my diagnosis, I received a itinerary from a company, a wonderful company in Hokkaido called Hokkaido Nature Tours. And the mountains in Hokkaido are very far apart. Hokkaido is Japan's northernmost major island. There are four major islands in Japan, Hokkaido, Honshu, Shikoku, and Kyushu. And in September of the climbing year, I was planning to go to Hokkaido and climb 12 mountains up there. But some of those mountains are impossible or very difficult to reach by public transportation. So I was going to diverge from my customary plan, which was to make all of my travel arrangements myself and act as my own fixer, which I did, which, um, right. however, I had just gotten the itinerary from Hokkaido Nature Tours because I had booked a private guide to help me and to provide transportation in Hokkaido. And so there were times during cancer treatment when I sat and read that itinerary from them every single day and visualized myself in Hokkaido and visualized myself on those mountains. And it absolutely helped me to get through. Now, you say that this is not these aren't Mount Everest or Kilimanjaro, uh, but I would think that this type of cancer treatment would leave you weaker. How did you deal with the physical challenges of, of getting ready to climb a hundred mountains after your, your treatment? Well, I continued training as it were during my cancer treatment. In fact, most of these mountains are long enough hikes that the hikes range from six and a half to my longest hiking day, I think was 15 hours of hiking. That's hiking time, not, you know, not resting time. And so my thought was I couldn't really train for the vertical very easily in the United States, especially because I lived in Sacramento, which is sort of notoriously flat. And so what I did was I walked and I walked back and forth. And when I was in cancer treatment and couldn't really get out much because my immune system was so compromised, I literally walked forward and backward across the floor and in the hall. And my doctor had Mm -hmm. said walking backward actually helps because it works those opposing muscles. It strengthens those muscles we don't normally work. So starting the day after my cancer treatment, I was kind enough to myself to give myself the day of my cancer treatment off. Uh, (laughs) I would start walking and my goal was a thousand steps that second day. And then the the third day, my goal was 2000 steps and then 4000 and then 6000 and then 8000. And I worked my way up to 12,000 steps a day. And then I continued to walk 12,000 steps a day every day for the remainder of the two weeks. I had two weeks between my treatment. So by the time I got up to 12,000, there was Uh about a week left. And then I just 
wash, rinse, repeat for three months. And did you have to keep starting it at square one? Because I would think that the cancer treatments were so draining that what you gained in strength might have been slightly sapped away between each each uh, segment. It was. In fact, I, I literally had to start from square one. There were some days, in fact, when even starting at square one, the only way I was able to get those thousand steps in on day two was knowing that if I didn't, I wouldn't make it to the mountains. And there were times at, you know, even almost all the way through the two weeks when I would be in so much pain and it would be so difficult that I would just collapse on the floor and cry. And then I would let myself cry. And when it was over, I said, okay, get up and keep walking. Wow. Now, after all this, you still have to sell your house. You have to move there. Did did you at least choose the easiest mountain to start with, I'm hoping? <laughs> you know, I chose what was called an easy one. But for someone who's never climbed a mountain, right, uh, an easy is relative. And uh, I chose a mountain that was within a day trip of Tokyo so that I could do it as a day trip, which, you know, I thought, sure, this will be great. This will be easy. It's supposed to be only about a supposed to be only about a five hour round trip climb, which I quickly came to discover that whoever sets the climbing times for these things is clearly based on Japanese hikers and not you know, Americans who just finished chemo less than a month before, because I, I actually finished my, I had my last chemo treatment on April 10th. I was cleared on May 7th by my CT scan post chemo. And my first mountain was climbed on May 20th. So that'll tell you how much time I gave myself to recover. Um, and I did, I went to Mount Akagi, which is in Gunma prefecture, and it's 1,828 meters high for those who do feet that's you know about a mile high and you start climbing wow. you know you don't start climbing from sea level fortunately but it's pretty close and so it was it was a lot more strenuous than i thought it was going to be and in fact when i finished my first thought was not hooray i'm done it was i'm not really sure i can do this 99 more times were you alone or did you bring somebody with you that first no, day no i went alone um I, you know my husband had Goodness. bad knees and couldn't climb and my son was working and my son also lives in Japan. He's an adult and he was working here as well. And so I, um, I just went out and did it. I left at five o'clock in the morning and I just barely made the last bus to the station to get back home. Oh my goodness. And uh, you, I asked if all of you speak Japanese, do you speak Japanese? I do. And I do much better now than I did. My Japanese... My Japanese well, sure. tends to be fairly basic. Um, I am great at mountain Japanese, and I have a lot of Japanese from from the history, right, from the history that I've studied. So if we want to have a conversation about that, it's great. And if you want me to tell you how to get where we're going, I can do that as well. But Because um, I'm worried about you just finding the bus, getting on the bus. If, if you had missed the last bus, what would you have done? I probably would have slept on the mountain, to be entirely honest. Um, there are... There are a lot wow. of people in Japan in, near the cities who do speak English. And of course, a lot of the signage is in English as well as in Japanese through almost all of Japan. So traveling in Japan is actually really easy. And I tell people this all the time. People say, oh, I've always wanted to go to Japan, but I'm so afraid because it's so foreign and I don't speak the language. And the good news is that you can travel in Japan very easily, especially in the major cities, but even in a lot of the small ones, even if you don't speak Japanese. So that was that was a benefit. You can, but the language barrier is profound. I think one of the reason one of the reasons you can travel there so easily is the Japanese people are 
deeply kind to, to uh, outsiders. Uh, my daughter uh, did a gap year uh, partially in Japan, just working in different places. And she learned a lot of Japanese. She knew none when she went, but she got along a lot because of the kindness of strangers. You know, there. that's absolutely true. And a case in point on that is that when I was traveling down in Kyushu, which is the farthest south of Japan's major islands. And I was climbing. I actually ended up on a mountain called Homanzan, which is down in the very far south of the, of the, uh, of the island. And while I was hiking, it was beautiful. It was snowy. In fact, it was really funny. It was just after the first of the year. And I had gone south because I thought, well, I'll avoid the snow. And it snowed heavily in Kyushu the morning before I arrived. And so I arrived on the mountain to find it covered in a beautiful, but fortunately not too deep coat of snow. And uh, and as I started hiking up and it was absolutely spectacular, the sun was making diamonds of the trees and the snow was just starting to melt and kind of fall down from the trees. And there was a beautiful white layer on the trail. It was absolutely spectacular. One Mm. of the best memories of my life. And about halfway up the mountain, I stopped for a snack break, as you do. And a gentleman showed up, a Japanese gentleman who was, I later found out, in his 80s, although he, I thought he was probably about 65. And as it turned out, he lived nearby. And he and I started talking in my limited Japanese, and he had almost no English, but we managed to make it work. And without saying so in so many words, appointed himself as my guardian for the trail, stayed with me the rest of the day, Aww. led me up to the summit, <laughs> led me over to the next mountain over. I was doing a traverse. And then as we walked back down, he said, how did you get here? And I said, well, I took the bus from the station. And he said, oh, don't do that. That takes 45 minutes. I'll just drive you back. And so I thought, well, against all of my training, right, that says don't ever get in the car with a stranger. Here I am in in the, you know, and he opened the back door because he wanted me to sit in the back because that was more polite. Oh, And so this gentleman, and I, I had tried to say no. I tried to say, no, 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 it's okay. And he said, no, no, it's my wife's birthday. So I was going to go buy her a present anyway. And it's right by the station. So I'll drop you off. And he drove me back to the train station at the end of the day. Yes, it's incredible. That happened to my daughter. My, She was 18 at the time and she hitchhiked around <laughs> Japan, which is not something you should tell your mom. I should, I should have been really nervous for her, but I knew she was in Japan. And I somehow trusted that. Maybe I was being foolish, but she she had wonderful experiences. So I've got to ask, I mean, you set this incredible physical challenge for yourself. Was it also a cultural challenge to even even despite the, the incredible kindness and graciousness of the Japanese people, but to totally take yourself out of your normal life and go live there and do this challenge uh, of the mountains? Was it a, a, a cultural challenge? Too? You know, I actually have loved the culture for a long time. And so for me, it was in many ways as much of a it almost felt like a cultural homecoming in some ways, even though I'm not Japanese. I absolutely adore the culture. I love the food. There were some brief challenges in certain places with the food because I happen to be allergic to fish, which creates some unique Mm, um, opportunities, I call them here in Japan. Um, (laughs) And so that could be challenging at times. The hardest thing for me, actually, and people often ask, what was the most difficult thing about about this journey? What was the most difficult thing about the mountains? And, And I tell them, you know, the most difficult thing about the mountains was what I took there with me. It was an incredible mental Mm. challenge because when you are alone, and I did hike except for the mountains I hiked in Hokkaido and except for about six or seven other mountains for which friends from the States came to hike with me. In fact, my mother came for one of them. I was alone. Wow. 
And when you're alone in the mountains, you know, it is better than any therapist in terms of forcing you to confront your own issues because your brain is not going to shut down. And there are only so many trees you can look at before you've seen the tree. And now your brain says, okay, well, let's think about this, or let's think about that, or let's think about this issue or that person or this thing from your past. And so I spent a lot of time thinking in the mountains and a lot of it was very challenging, but I can say with confidence that I have in fact overcome my fears and it no longer rules my life. Wow. Well, I don't want to give away the whole book, but I have to ask, did you find the meaning of the mountains? Uh, You said that people in Japan spend an entire lifetime looking for that meaning, taking these 100 mountains, maybe a couple every year. Were you able to find the the meaning in one short year? You know, I was. And without giving away the whole book, I hit a moment. (laughs) I hit a moment in the year when I had to make a decision. I had to make a decision between facing and overcoming fear and actually finishing the hundred mountains that appear on the Hyakumezan list, or simply climbing a hundred famous mountains in Japan and leaving some of the remaining Hyakumezan to finish in another year. And I will tell you that the mountains I chose are all very challenging and they're all famous for one reason or another. But I decided, did may end up making the decision for reasons that I go into in great detail in the book, that it was more important to me to fix myself than to set a record that someone else would simply come along and break in another year or two. Right. Well, it's uh, it's a, an extraordinary book. Once again, it's called Climb, Leaving Safe and Finding Strength on 100 Summits in Japan. It's been such a delight speaking with you, Susan. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you so much. much for the opportunity. It's been wonderful speaking with you too, Pauline. We have Emily Thomas on the line. Emily is a professor at Durham University in the UK. She has also written, and this is why she's on with us today, a terrific new book called The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad. Emily, welcome finally to the Fromer podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I say finally, because we were hoping to do this conversation closer to when the book came out, but uh, certain things in life intervened. Uh, So tell me, why is the book called The Meaning of Travel? The idea is to treat travel as one of the big questions that philosophy can look into. Uh, So it's all about how philosophers have thought about travel and and how we can think more deeply about the history and some of the big issues around travel. So you're saying the philosophers thought about travel. That might come as a surprise to many people. So you're not talking about Aristotle hanging out by the swimming pool. You're talking about something a little deeper than that, right? I am, yeah. So although philosophy and travel doesn't seem like it has very much in common, you know, philosophy is all about bearded Greeks like Aristotle and and travel is about very different things. Um, In fact, they have this really long and interconnected history. And what I found when researching the philosophy of travel is that 
philosophers have actually had quite big impacts on travel. And travel has actually also had some huge impacts on philosophy. So these two things, even though they seem very different, they really have these long interconnected histories together. So which philosopher first wrote about travel? The first one to really get into it, I think, was Francis Bacon. And he's writing late 16th, early 17th century. It's during the age of discovery. So it makes sense, I think, that in Europe, everyone's getting super excited about these ships that are sailing across the seas. They're bringing back information about new trade routes, new plants, new animals. And and Bacon uses all of this to concoct a new philosophy of science. And, And he makes travel at the heart of what he thinks science should be like. Science should be all about observation and experimentation. Um, And to do those things, he thinks you've got to get back on the ships. That's fascinating. I guess, yes, this whole new world was opened up to Europeans and it must have shaken their ideas of of what it meant to live life because suddenly they were in contact with people who were living very differently, who were eating different things, who who weren't necessarily Christian. Um, Yes, (laughs) meeting non-Christians was a huge shock. (laughs) <laughs> for Christian really? I mean, even the idea that there could be human beings that were not Christians came as a shock. Huh. Yeah, um, and you have people arguing back in the 17th century, oh, that maybe people in China and Japan are actually Christian, just in an unfamiliar way. I completely wow. disregarding their own histories and religions. Yeah, um, and very slowly, people developed new worldviews that could take account of that. Yeah, um, but it was a real... It, um, it must have been a real sort of head shock for them, I think. I mean, people used to believe, for example, that all human beings are born with the same innate ideas about morality huh. and religion. And then they're yeah. meeting these people in distant lands who have very different ideas, and they have to reform their philosophies as a result. But you did have St. Augustine well before the 17th century saying something like, a life is a book, and if you do not travel, you only read one page. Was he only talking about traveling within the Christian world, do you think? Actually, I do. Yeah. I don't think people, I don't think their horizons were so large, but before the age of discovery. And, you know, people heard distant tales about Africa or Asia. And Marco Polo, of course, had had done his exploring very famously earlier than that. Absolutely. But lots of these stories were lies, probably. And (laughs) historical evidence that Marco Polo never got much further than Constantinople, for example. And when you start to hear tales of distant lands, I mean, they involve human beings who have heads like dogs, all kinds of myths and legends propagate. And so information about places that were very far away was considered a bit dodgy. Interesting. And sometimes, and you write in your book about the fact that it wasn't just people, uh, what's the word, uh, unknowingly representing of distant lands in a dodgy way. It was also people knowingly making the exotic seem maybe darker than it needed to be. You have a whole section on maps, uh, which kind of goes deeply into this. Yeah, absolutely. So 
people could really take advantage of the fact that fact checking was really difficult to do. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No Google. No Google. Absolutely not. (laughs) Um, And that allowed them to literally fill in maps with what they thought should be there. (laughs) Mm. What's odd is that some of the things people imagined to be on maps actually turned out to be almost right. Really? Yeah. So uh, the map maker Mercator, for example, reasoned philosophically that Antarctica should exist because it would be a counterweight to the Arctic. Um, And lo and behold, something like Antarctica does indeed exist roughly where he thought it would. Wow. It seems like coincidence rather than the result of... sound. But all all of those beautiful little mermaids they would draw on the corners of maps and sea dragons and those didn't exist. They did not exist. Um, And this becomes a real problem for these 17th century philosophers of science because they want reliable information about the world. And so you end up with Francis Bacon and people who came after uh, issuing guidelines as to how people should write about travel saying, please do tell the truth. (laughs) Only instantly respectable people. Right. And fact-checking became a thing. They wanted stories that could be repeatedly confirmed. Huh. So this is how, so travel opened up the world of philosophy and the sciences. How does philosophy open up travels? How should people today be looking for deeper meaning when they get out there and see the world? Are there, are there methods to do this? I think the biggest method is to think hard about the stuff that you are traveling to see and why you're going to see it. So I think that the heart of travel is about encountering the unfamiliar, about finding things that are other to you. And and lots of philosophers have written about how this is really beneficial for us. Coming into contact with the unknown forces us to reassess our own assumptions about the world, maybe to ditch some of the things that we thought were just obviously true. Like, you always have to eat with a knife and a fork. (laughs) That's just not the case. I'm all the way up to big truths about how society should be run or or what's ethically, morally correct. And and so I think when we travel, the best thing we can do is really put ourselves in situations when we're going to encounter the unfamiliar. So don't just go on a trip where you'll be surrounded with people from your own country, like really get out into the world. I think that's even more important today when so many people, and this may not be as true in Britain as it is here in the United States, but you have this deep distrust right now for quote unquote official sources of information or less official sources of information than the news media. And so you have a lot of people making up their own realities. And I think travel could be a counterweight to that because I know for me, a major truism in travel is what you expect to find when you travel somewhere is never what you get. There's always differences. There's always truths that you discover that you couldn't discover in a book or a magazine that you have to go and experience. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I do. And it has 
often happened to me. I read a lot about a place before I've been to visit. And when I rock up, I still discover things that completely turn what I thought I knew on its head. Absolutely. In really useful ways. That seems like a good thing for humans to do, to appreciate how much we don't know about the world. That being said, I think if you approach travel having read in advance and having done your research, you're going to have a deeper uh, understanding of what you're seeing. You're not going to be an ignoramus. You're going to bring something to the trip and then maybe have some of that flipped on its head, uh, but in a more meaningful way, I think. I think that's true. And I think that's a way that philosophy can enrich our travels. So For example, lots of philosophers have written about how spending time alone in nature has various benefits for us, that it helps us to feel like we're part of the natural world in a way that living in human society, we can often feel kind of above it, like we've transcended Mm -hmm. it somehow. And, And I think knowing about those kinds of ideas can really help you to look at nature in a new way. And it's similarly, some of the ethical issues around travel, right? I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. Climate change is a problem. (laughs) Um, And whether or not visiting certain places is going to accelerate climate change. You know, is it ethical to visit a glacier if the act of visiting a glacier will sort of hasten its demise, will help to destroy it? I think bearing this stuff in mind can really make us more thoughtful travelers. Sure. Well, there's all kinds of ethical issues with what you should and shouldn't visit. Like, for example, is it ethical to visit? Visit slums and gawk at people who are living in more impoverished in a more impoverished fashion than you are, because you obviously have the the money to travel. I mean that 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 comes into play in South Africa and in Brazil, where uh, this it's called poorism with a P, poorism as opposed to tourism, where you purposefully go. Is that unethical? Uh, Because we do visit palaces and manors to see how the well-to-do used to live and maybe still live today in the ones we can't visit. (laughs) Uh, how How does one use ethics to decide that? What are the methods? Ethics can help you consider these issues from lots of different angles. It can help you weigh them up. So on the one hand, it can seem like a kind of voyeurism um, to go and look at people who are living harder lives than your own. But the counter argument might be that if you do this kind of tourism with a responsible company, that you'll be putting money back into those communities. And perhaps the people living in those conditions are actually quite happy for wealthier people to see how they're living. And by means of raising awareness, you know, going home, spreading the word, there are some terrible conditions in the world and we need to be donating more to charities that can help them. And I think ethics is not the kind of discipline that's necessarily going to tell you this is right or wrong, but it's really going to help you make up your mind about what's right and wrong. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Well, I was reading a description of your book and uh, I just have to ask you one thing because, and this may be a little silly, why should you wash underwear in a woodland cabin? (laughs) That came up in the description. It did. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is um, American philosopher Henry Theroux and traveled into wilderness by himself and 
built a cabin made of logs by the side of Walden Pond. And and his book is all about how he's self-reliant, he's making it um, in the wilderness alone. Um, But it turned out afterwards that he would take all his laundry home weekly (laughs) for wash. (laughs) He was really crucified for this. People thought, oh, come on. If you're not washing your own underwear, then you're not really living the the sort of wood experience. On that silly note, uh, I'm going to say thank you. Once again, we have been speaking with Emily Thomas. She has a lovely new book out called The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad. Thank you so much, Emily, for appearing on the Travel Fromers Travel Podcast. Thank you. It's been lovely. And welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Tony. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you on because your recent article for Travel and Leisure really transported me to Italy, one of my favorite places. Although this is a, an area I'm I'm embarrassed to say I've never been to. So I've never been to, and here's the headline of the article, the Hem Dungeons, Vinegar Lofts, and More Adventures in Italy's Oddly Specific Food Museums. Now, these food museums are in the area of Emilia Romana, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a northern uh, province uh, in between Florence and Venice. Uh, uh, Bologna is the biggest city, um, which tragically, uh, not long after I was there, hit the world news for being a, a major COVID centre. But uh, oh, when yeah. I went there, it wasn't. It was really beautiful and relaxed. How long? When were you actually there? It, when did you research this? Uh, it was last December. So oh, uh, just as things were, you know, winter was sort of creeping in. But of course, in, you know, in Italy, it was like 75 degrees and sunny. But uh, uh, but yeah, it was a wonderful experience because I too had traveled all over Italy, but never made it to Bologna, even though that area, Emilia Romana, is sort of famous as the, as the crucible of Italian gastronomy. Yes, it is. You know, it, people forget how late the Various states that make up Italy today unified into one country, but this area has always been, they, they call Bologna, Bologna the fat. Yes, uh, La Grassa, La Grassa, because it's like, yeah, it was there. I mean, that was where the, you know, the, basically the trattoria was it was invented in the Middle Ages. Uh, people used to dream of going to Bologna because it always had the finest hams, the finest cheeses. Uh, everything was uh, just so much better there. That's so interesting that the trattoria was invented there before the trattoria. What, did everybody just eat at home? Uh, yeah, I mean, mostly it was aristocrats who were like had their own chefs and things like that. And then uh, uh, of this idea of this communal eating space is a relatively novel one. Yeah. All right. Well, talking about novel ideas, let's talk about balsamic vinegar, which I think people think of as, you know, as something you have in your pantry. And when you're whipping up a salad, you use a dash of that. But the Italians a generation ago probably would never have done that on a daily basis, right? No, they had to, it was a, a major process to produce this stuff. And uh, there's a big difference as traditional balsamic vinegar, which is completely different. Like it's, it's, uh, uh, it has to be made around the Modena area. So they've sort of, it's like champagne. They sort of like get copyrighted the, the whole thing. The stuff we buy in the supermarket is considered swill by comparison. <laughs> yeah. And they but work, it, in a, it takes years for them to, uh, you know, like 12 to 25 years to, uh, to prepare. Wow. And I, I think in your article, you were talking about that it was such a, such a big event when the that people would, when they had a, a girl baby, they would start making for her uh, some 
balsamic vinegar, right? Yeah, which is why it's a, it's a 25 years, and it would usually be the dowry, the woman's dowry. Um, so, uh, so it was a major thing. It wasn't meant to be had on a daily basis. It was only for like religious festivals or you know, extraordinary events, um, which is just as well because it was extremely labor intensive. Uh, that would take them, you know, basically a full time job for someone to reduce this stuff and move it from one barrel to, to the next to ever smaller barrels. Wow. And did you get to taste any at the museum? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a marvellous experience because it's in a beautiful old mansion in, uh, in this little village outside of Modena and uh, you can smell the place way before you can see it, like 100 yards away. Uh, and then as you go in, it, the smell becomes stronger and stronger until you get up to the loft. And that's where there's barrels that were like from um, the Napoleonic age. Uh, Massimo Bottura, the chef, has uh, his uh, collection of barrels. Uh, everyone, you know, like the, 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 the aristocrats, the modern aristocrats of uh, the area keep their, keep their barrels there. And and uh, part of the tour is you get a little bit of a taste of the um, 12-year-old and then the, the 25-year-old, uh, which is just a little drop on a, on a plastic uh, plastic uh, uh, spoon, but it explodes in your mouth. It's, it's really like, oh, my God, this is something. It's completely different, I must say, to the, the supermarket balsamic. Wow. There was also a museum to pasta. Uh, to my mind, how could you yes, have a, yes, museum a museum to pasta? That doesn't seem like there's enough to talk about. How much is there to say about pasta? Turns out there's a lot. There's, uh, I mean, everything from the history going back to uh, you know, the, the late Middle Ages uh, and its growing, growing popularity. But to today, there's like 300 different types and uh, uh, different shapes. And there's the so there's a whole wall that shows the extrusion methods for each one and from the spirals to the, the different you know, widths of uh, spaghetti to the whole the whole bit. And uh, uh, they're all extremely different and each one is supposed to be eaten with its own special sauce. So there's this beautiful computerised system where you can go there and you can pick a pick a pasta shape and it'll tell you the ideal sauce to go with it, which has to do with the texture and how it will sort of fall off the um, uh, the pasta. It's kind of extraordinary. Yeah, and I guess that way that the Italians eat a lot of pasta. This way, they don't have to keep repeating, right? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the woman who was showing me around was like, well, you know, her, her parents are very traditional, and they eat pasta for lunch and dinner every day. So if it wasn't for this huge variety, they would get bored. Now you were in Parma too, where Parmesan cheese comes from, which is what you top good pasta with. What, what did you see in in Parma? Outside of uh, Parma, there's this marvelous uh, museum of Parmigiano Reggiano. Uh, again, a specific, very specific type of uh, the high-end uh, parmesan. It's in a beautiful farmhouse, a so- which is a circular sort of place because uh, that was where, how they would have the um, beasts of burden would go around grinding the, uh, the the wheat in this sort of circular farmhouse. A very beautiful place. And there they, they go through the whole history. They um, show you the history of the cheese grater, for example, which is like these uh, medieval torture implements that are laid out. Uh, and at the end, of course, you get a, a taste of the um, uh, various types of uh, parmigiano from uh, you know, like six months, 12 12 months and two years, and it becomes stronger and stronger and uh, more and more potent and a little harder. And you know, if you and what I did was the classic thing is to buy some, take it, shave it off, and drop some balsamic vinegar on it, and then you get the total taste sensation. Wow! And then, of course, one of the most famous products of this region is the ham. Tell us about the ham. 
Well, the ham is it's everywhere, uh, and it really is sort of fetishized a bit in uh, the area. It's uh, there's different grades. Again, the prosciutto that we get in the supermarket is regarded as uh, cardboard over there. It's it's sort of the lower end. It's relatively doesn't have a, a great taste, but they have different grades. And my favorite, I mean, the most famous one is called the culotello, which is the uh, the one that is prepared over several years, and it has to be under basically in underground sort of places with the doors open and the windows open to let in the moist air the humid air of the Po River Valley. So it gives it a, this, this sort of incredible moisture. And um, it's ex- extremely, again, very labor intensive. So there's only a few thousand of these hands prepared every year. But there is a museum of Culatello, which happens to be in a marvelous uh, castle, uh, and at which, ha- which is also a hotel. So sort of a, not, not super expensive, but quite expensive. And uh, it's uh, the Ante Corte Palicina. And you go there and it has a Michelin-starred restaurant. So not only can you go to the museum, learn all about the Culatello, you go to this extraordinary, extraordinary meal where they just lay out Culatello uh, with great chunks of butter if you want it, if you really want to, like, clog wow. butter. Wow. Ha- butter on ham? I That's- know, I know. It's almost it's <laughs> out of control. I just sort of, I think they can't stop themselves. Uh, but the Culatello is so, it's so uh, beloved there that when there was a flood uh, a couple of years ago, they, they had to decide... What do we what do we say first, the women and the children or the hams? And there was no uh, there's no uh, no no choice. They they went for the hams first. Well, it's a delightful article. It brought me straight to the heart of Italy. Once again, it's if you want to read it, it's in travelandleisure.com. Ham dungeons, vinegar lofts, and more adventures in Italy's oddly specific food museums. Great title. Uh, thank you, Tony, for appearing on the travel show. Well, thanks for having me. So that's it for this week's show. We thank you so much for listening. As a reminder, there isn't going to be a podcast next week, but that could be a great excuse for you to visit us at fromers.com, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S.com, because we always have really interesting articles, photo galleries, and much more there. Uh, And that'll be the case over Thanksgiving. To those who celebrate the holiday, may we wish you a warm and wonderful Thanksgiving. It really is such an important holiday in that it reminds us to be grateful for the good things we have in our lives. And for me, travel has always been that. I hope to be traveling again in the near future. But right now I'm thankful for all of the friends I've made on the road, for all of the adventures I've had, for the things I've experienced. So may I wish you and yours a healthy, safe Thanksgiving. See you in two weeks. And to those who are traveling, a hearty bon voyage. Can I help you find what you're looking for? If not, then I'll be